Well, romance nerds, I finally talked Jen into letting me do it. I dug deep into the annals of Christmas to bring you this episode, and our goal today is to make Jen's heart grow three times the size. <laughs> it's more like it's going to sing. <laughs> hey, you never know. Yeah. I am here to report for, to you from the trenches of Hallmark, oh my God. ecological conservation, that one, okay. and dating and mating psychology studies to bring you the lowdown on Christmas tree farms and lumber sexuals. It's off to Grandmother's house we go. Oh, boy. Hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopole in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's rage! Hey, Jackie. Yes. Why do reindeer like Beyonce so much? Why? She slays. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell my niece that joke. That was beautiful. I tried so hard. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. Well, Jen, we made it. This is our last full-length episode of the year. We still have one mini-sode left, so don't forget to listen to that, everybody. Mm -hmm. But it's just hard to believe. Jen and I aren't done officially recording because we still have January episodes we have to prep and edit, but Mm -hmm. this is the last in-depth discussion you'll hear from us for the rest of 2022. (gasps) For the whole two weeks. (gasps) I know. Such a long time. You'll have to go. I don't know what you're going to do. It's like a vacation from us. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> Go back and listen to our old episodes. I know you miss our show. Not voices. the oldest one. No, please, Jesus, Not the no. Oldest ones. No. <laughs> oh, but seriously, where has the year gone? I We've don't know. Had the opportunity to have so many amazing conversations and guests this year, and if I can get heartfelt for just a moment. Wow, can you? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> but I am so incredibly grateful for all of the opportunities we've had, and I'm really excited to see what we can do in 2023. And before we dive in any further, I do want to issue a shout out to Christina from Canada. Christina, I've already emailed you back at this point, but thank you again so much for writing in. It's always so nice to hear from you lovely listeners. And Christina, your email was incredibly kind. (laughs) Wow, look at this hint Jackie's (laughs) dropping on everybody. Email us at virginwarmatics.noble.org. Thank you, Christina, for being a completist and listening to all of our episodes, even the bad ones. Oh, God. She needs like a reward or something. (sighs) We need to have like a finished sticker. (laughs) If you would like a sticker, let us know. We'll mail you one. I don't know if we should encourage that people listen to the beginning, though. Listen, as long as they're not watching the YouTube, it's fine. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. We are not on YouTube anymore. No, not at all. No, you can't find me throwing a book. Or me yelling at a cat. Or me blushing at Jackie. Oh, yeah, because I did the wall It works, let me tell you. I, I have the smolder, mm-hmm. what can I say? Well, that's maybe something for next year. Maybe we should make like a little pin or a badge or something to send anybody who's who's like a raging romantic. We have that, and then we have to make our bowling shirts. Oh my god, I want a bowling shirt. I think they're really fun. Oh, be they're so, so fun. underrated. They are. They're, they're like supposed silk. to be corny. There's, and we could do hot pink and purple mm-hmm. and like neon raging romantics. Yeah. We get a Fabio. Oh, maybe not. No, we can have Fabio. Who cares? Yeah, it's copyright, maybe. We but we could start a bowling league. We could start a bowling league. Although, as I have already said, I need the bumpers. That's fine. I love bumpers. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Anyways, let's talk about Christmas. This is a long episode, I think. Um, to jump right into the snowbank. Today, we're going to be covering three main points. You know I love an outline. First, we're going to look at Christmas trees. Then we're going to look at Christmas tree farms. And finally, we're going to be looking at why we find lumberjacks so attractive, or at least why they may be viewed as conventionally attractive romantic figures in romance books. That's a good point to bring up because honestly, I have not thought of it. And yeah. we, we overthink everything. But we lumberjacks do. always kind of been just like, yeah, whatever. They, they chop trees down. They live in the woods. They're like... I overthought it. Like human attractive... Bigfoots, maybe that's really what you like about it. It's like the human equivalent of Bigfoot. I am a brownie man girl. Yeah. So. Oh, that too. The paper towels were yeah. a big uh, point. <laughs> the paper towels specifically. They were really important. <laughs> I love a good paper towel. What can I say? Double quilted. Mm-hmm. Mm, perfect. <laughs> but buckle in, romance nerds. We're going to take a look at a lot of intersectionality between politics, popular culture, history, economy, ecology, and psychology. These are a few of my favorite oh things. This is really heavy for the end of the year. So, to begin, 
This all started because the holiday books I've been binging this season, including Kisser Ones for Me, In the Events of Love, You're Mean When Matthew Prince, Season of Love, and There's Something About Mary, all featured Christmas tree cutting scenes, and most of them, in fact, were set on Christmas tree farms. And this was when I realized that a lot of Christmas romances feature these pivotal locations. And even some non-denominational or non-Christian romances I've read, like Season of Love, still have Christmas trees as central to the plot. Think about it. Even in Hallmark. So I just knew I wanted to follow up with a full-length episode where we can talk about romantic interests and plaid shirts being all strong and stuff and chopping down a tree because I personally really hate crawling in the snow. And that is something we can agree on. Yeah, I know you're not a Christmas person. No. Are you a Christmas tree person? And if so, real or plastic? Uh, Okay, so I did finally buy a tree after having lived in my house for like two (gasps) years. Can I help you decorate it? Uh, no well because I bought it because I was all like sad and lonely and nostalgic during COVID (laughs) so I got actually like a really cool silver to pink tree from a Target yeah Yeah, it's really cool but it's like the skinny little thing so I don't really decorate it it doesn't I don't know what I would put on it to make it look good I put it in front of the window and like occasionally I'll turn it on but I've been really lazy about it this year and I have not lucky deserves his Christmas tree to be lit listen if I had the tree lit up (laughs) he's fine okay he could stare at it and wonder he already stares at dumb things he has plenty (laughs) of twinkle in his eyes okay the tree is there it's in a window so like I look (laughs) like I care I have candles somewhere too I just have not felt like putting up yet because you gotta do the timer oh we just plug them in and unplug them oh well I don't want to do that like why am I gonna go around and like no because timers do work me. yeah like ugh. <laughs> so no I'm not I'm I used to care and then I got older and cynical and, and I'm like I live alone what do I care it's just more stuff to clean <laughs> honestly and then you gotta store it the whole year I think if they had I know this is a business let me scratch that out I think if I had more money I could hire somebody to do it for me yes and then I wouldn't have to keep the stuff in my house you could pay me to do it for you well how much in baked goods I already do that. Why aren't you doing this for me now? I need more baked goods (laughs) and books. (laughs) And like, I just don't want to keep the stuff in my house. Like you've seen my house. I have one closet. This is true. Where else am I going to put a tree? That was a very long way of saying, no, I'm not (laughs) super Christmassy. My mother's very disappointed in me. Oh. Yeah. She got really upset when I was like, no, I just don't really care as much as I used to. And she was like, I can't believe I raised children like this. I can't believe it's not butter. I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. So I don't know how this episode's going to go. It's okay. I can appreciate a good do- dose of cynicism. I almost said cinnamon. It's weird how we trade <laughs> off on that. I sometimes know. I am very optimistic, but it is like, maybe it'd be different if I had kids or a partner or like something other than a dog mm. who does not care about the decorations, Jackie. The dog is fine. <laughs> if I had more space, I don't know. But for now, I'm like, eh. I'm going to hire a dog psychic for you and see what Lucky has to say God, about Lucky Christmas. Lucky does not need a psychic. <laughs> Lucky needs some psychotics. <laughs> he does not need a psychic. <laughs> Anyways, um, on that lovely note, in case you cannot tell, I am a real Christmas tree girl. Every winter, my mom, sister, niece, and nephew and I bundle up, jump on a wagon with a very dangerous looking saw I should honestly not be allowed anywhere near, and we go find the perfect tree. My sister's new house also has really tall ceilings, so last year we got to live out our dream of finding a 10-foot tall spruce, and oh my god, it was perfect, even if I had to climb on a ladder to put the star on top, because I was the only one who wasn't scared. But I was scared. Well, why do you like it, though? Why do I like Christmas trees? Yeah, like, why do you want one in your house? Because they're pretty, and they smell good, and it just makes everything so cozy and comfy looking and just full of light and happiness. But then why don't you have one all year round? Because then in the summer, I have one outside. Oh, okay. So fine. I did not get you there. (laughs) Um, That being said... I can also see the merits in plastic trees, but what astounded me when I was doing my research was the absolute muckraking that both sides had when it came to the other. Pro-plastic claims that real Christmas tree farms are terrible for ecological diversity and conservation efforts. Pro-real claims that plastic production spews chemicals into the atmosphere that will only contribute to climate change, the horror. So like any good librarian, I did research and I talked to people. Okay, well, I talked to my neighbor who owns a nursery and a flower farm. Shout out to Green Effects Nursery. <laughs> Christmas tree farms are an exceedingly lucrative business model, not just here in the U.S., but in Mexico and Europe as well. Before we dive into information about the farms themselves, though, I want to look at the history of Christmas trees so that we can see what led us to this point of flooded Christmas tree markets. 
What's interesting, at least to me, we don't actually know where or when precisely the tradition of the Christmas tree originated. There are a lot of different traditions that like to claim to be the first, so let's just go over a few. If you go by one popular story, the Christmas tree was first, quote, invented by Protestant revolutionary minister Martin Luther, who lived between 1483 and 1546. Supposedly, Luther was wandering in the woods one day when he came across an evergreen and was so inspired by the beauty of the scene that he felt the need to place candles and dedications on it in reverence to the baby Jesus. Yeah, sure, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. Oh, just one tree he loved. Yeah, it was just... I'd be a little worried for that tree. Oh. Mm. Mm. Okay, Martin Meanwhile, Luther. Meanwhile, and Martin Luther was busy doing other things. He was busy nailing those 95 theses yeah, on the door. That's the wood he loves, is that door. Another popular story and a country rivalry to this day exists between Latvia and Estonia, who both claim to have been the first to erect a tree for the Christmas holidays. Latvia traces its Christmas tree traditions back to 1510, when a merchant guild called the House of the Black Heads in the capital city of Riga carried a tree through the city, decorated it, and later burned it. Meanwhile, Estonia has countered these claims, saying it has evidence of a similar festival hosted by the very same guild in its capital city, Tallinn, in 1441. There also exists the symbology of the Christmas tree in association with the Christian festival of Christmas seen through medieval mystery plays. These mystery plays were tableaus that focused on the representation of Bible stories with accompanying antiphonal song and parade. They told the story of subjects such as the creation, Adam and Eve, the murder of Abel, and the Last Judgment, and often were performed together in cycles which could last for days. One tableau we know about featured the popular iconography of the paradise tree, or the tree in the Garden of Eden, which was often decorated with roses as symbols for the Virgin Mary and with fruit for prosperity. This tree also may have been used as a billboard of sorts, which would be carried around town by the players so that people would know a play was about to go on. Can I be mean for a second? Yeah. Lots of people have trees. There can't only be one person who was like, oh, hey, let me go decorate that tree. People like to claim origins. We know I this. get that. But like nobody was probably the first. It was probably lots of different people. And we're just going to fight over it forever. And like, mm-hmm. I feel like probably older than any of this, people were putting stuff on trees. Because in reality, oh, see, the Europeans of the high medieval and Renaissance <laughs> were not the first to erect evergreens in celebration during the winter months of the Northern Hemisphere. Bing, bing on the nose, Jen. <laughs> I knew it. The tradition goes back much further and is one of those fun historical tidbits that tends to like cross culture and countries Mm -hmm. with surprising similarities like the Sleeping Beauty story. Uh The Egyptians celebrated the sun god Ra by hanging palm rushes in their home during the winter solstice, which on the Gregorian calendar falls on December 21st, as symbols of life and death and to celebrate the turn from the shortest days of the year to the lengthening days of spring and summer that would come. The Romans celebrated Saturnalia from what is now December 17th to December 25th, the height of the winter solstice, in honor of their god Saturn, the god of harvest and agriculture. Saturnalia was fun. It was a drunken, debauched, carnal celebration full of orgies and food and wine and a general good time had by all. And the Romans would decorate their homes and temples with evergreen boughs in honor of Saturn. That's the one I've heard. And it's just kind of like pagan based that the Christianity kind Mm -hmm. of adopted in order to get converts. Yep. We've talked about that before. Yeah, a gazillion years. You see, if we go into the symbology of the evergreen for just a quick second, in the Northern Hemisphere, as I'm sure you're aware, lovely listener, there's not much that's alive during those long, cold winter months. But the evergreen, as its name suggests, is always green. It doesn't necessarily drop its needles in winter and die back like deciduous trees do. So in early minds, and this is not to simplify the beliefs of the time period, it just helps us frame our understanding. These trees became symbols of life during the hardest, leanest months. They represented the coming season in the turn from cold, difficult winter to lush, ripening spring. And the use of these evergreen boughs stretches even further to the synonymous celebration of Yule in Northern European traditions. Yule comes from the Old English Yol, which shares a history with the equivalent word from Old Norse Yol. I know they sound so different. Both these words refer to a midwinter festival centered around the winter solstice, which traditionally marked the halfway point of the winter season. Evergreen boughs are brought in in Scandinavia to honor the god Baldr, son of Odin and god of beauty, light, and joy. Perfect celebrations for winter solstice, in my opinion. The Yule log, in turn, was originally an entire tree that was brought in and lit in the fireplace. It was meant to burn for the entirety of solstice celebration, and in turn... This would become the celebration of the 12 days of Christmas, which are from December 25th to January 5th. 
In reality, this would come to lend some of the esteem to lighting candles as beacons for a modern approach to Christmas trees. Moving forward past the Reformation and Renaissance's urge to claim the Christmas tree, the modern symbol we recognize today for the Christmas holidays was highly popularized in German culture, so much so that Queen Charlotte, wife of King George III, yes, that George, America, and the, du- and the daughter of the Duchy of mecklenburg straditz in northern Germany, brought the tradition of setting up a Christmas tree to Windsor Castle in 1761. It's said that she decorated it with tinsel and glass and sweets and gifts, a la the Nutcracker, and gathered the children from the noble families of Windsor to take their gifts from the tree. This tradition was, in a somewhat romantic story, brought to America by the Hessian troops who fought with the British against the colonists during the American Revolution. Oh, boo. Story has it that the German troops, during the particularly long winter of 1776, when they were holed up in New York, sought to bring a little Christmas cheer to the assembled forces. The Hessians set up Christmas trees and decorated them, singing German carols and generally having a good time. Which probably wasn't the best time for some Christmas cheer, as evidenced by the fact that over the course of the next two days, they were soundly defeated by George Washington in Trenton, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. Also, remember Trenton, New Jersey. Remember Why that. would I want to do that? I know. We don't like New Jersey. Ugh. Sorry, New Jersey, but <laughs> not really. I'm from Pennsylvania. We can make fun of them. Yeah, we're from New York. We can make fun of them. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> the modern tree was further romanticized by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, setters of trends, when, again, the German nobleman influenced Victoria into setting up a Christmas tree in the palace in 1848. This moment was immortalized when the Illustrated London News published an illustration of the royal family gathered around a decorated Christmas tree, and, much like white wedding dresses, Christmas trees with glass Victorian baubles, candles, which have thankfully become electric lights, and gifts both on and beneath the boughs became all the rage. The popularity grew even further in America after 1850 when Godey's Ladies Book, a Philadelphia-based magazine, republished the royal family's Christmas scene from Illustrated London News for the American public. And that was all she wrote. Christmas trees have become highly popularized during the Christmas scene for Western society, and of course, as capitalism and the popularity of more modern Christmas celebrations boomed, Christmas trees became their own industry. For the most part, they were originally products of the wild. Families going out into the woods, little Tim on dad's shoulders, and Janet complaining about the cold as they hiked through the snowy forest for the perfect tree to decorate their hearth. God, that does sound annoying. (laughs) But more and more people were living in the cities, away from forests where they could easily cut down their own trees. But they still wanted that noble fir. The answer? Christmas tree farms. Here's a fact I didn't know. The first official Christmas tree farm was founded in 1901 in, again, Trenton, New Jersey. Is New Jersey the mother of all American Christmas trees? At least they're famous for something good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> two two good points. Hey, they got the Hessians a little punch drunk and they started Christmas tree farms. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah. Good job, Jersey. Hey, for once. Although slight caveat, <laughs> in 1851 Mr. Mark Carr, an entrepreneur from the Catskill Mountains, began cutting down fir and spruce trees and then hauled them to a ship bound for New York City and rented out space at the Washington Market, and I think that's now the Washington Square Market, downtown, to sell the trees for $1 and he promptly sold out. His family continued this business until 1898. While farms began to spring up during the early 20th century in areas like, again, New Jersey, upstate New York, Maine, Vermont, and even in the Blue Ridge Mountains, most families continued to prefer wild-grown trees and to cut their own through World War II. By the end of World War II, though, tree farms began to really take a corner of the market. My hypothesis for this is that Christmas tree farms became popular due to the effect World War II had on the family structure and gender roles and available time for leisure activities and the decline in those things. It was easier to go to a farm, but you still got the same experience as going out in the trees with the added bonus of free hot cocoa after the fact. Now, by the 21st century, nearly 98% of natural Christmas trees are grown on farms. Fun fact, there is even a National Christmas Tree Association. And here are some of their stats for us to consider. As of today, December 2022, there are approximately 25 to 30 million real Christmas trees sold in the U.S. every year, and close to 50 million trees currently growing on Christmas tree farms in the U.S. alone. Trees are grown in all 50 states in Canada, and there are about 350,000 acres on 15,000 farms producing trees for the U.S. The top producing states are Oregon, North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Washington. And yes, there are even tree farms in Hawaii which is fun. So what does the typical Christmas tree life cycle look like? 
Well, a tree can take anywhere between four to ten years to reach maturity, although the average tree is chopped down and brought into the house at five to seven years old. I'm going to link a really good article from the Washington Post in the show notes for you. It goes into depth on the life cycle of Christmas trees. Highly recommend giving it a read because it really, like, it lays everything out. And there's a lot I even had no idea about. Now, don't worry, Jen. I know you were dying to know about artificial trees, too. Your little pink and silver Christmas tree needed to feel included. I do like my little pink guy. It's fun colors. You can get them in fun colors. I still love him, even if I don't particularly care about Christmas. Yes. And I know you're very concerned about the ecological implications of Christmas tree farms in real versus plastic. I just can't go to sleep at night thinking about it. No, it just burns a hole in your head. It's so scary. So let's talk about it. It can be tempting to go with the Real Christmas trees are better for the environment because they aren't made with plastic. Truthfully, according to the NCTA, every acre of tree production produced produced the daily oxygen requirement for 18 people. With 500,000 acres in production in the U.S. alone, that amounts to oxygen for 9 million people per day. Likewise, an independent life cycle assessment study uh, conducted by a firm of experts in sustainable development states that a natural tree will generate 3.1 kilograms of greenhouse gases, where areas the artificial tree will produce 8.1 kilograms. In addition, researchers at the University of Nebraska included the reuse of natural Christmas trees as mulch and, in larger quantities, piled up as soil erosion barriers among the benefits of live tree use. So too, Christmas tree farms are great for making use of land that cannot be otherwise farmed or might pose a threat to the surrounding landscape due to the same soil erosion. They can be grown in poorer quality soils and steeper slopes than the more typical row crops such as corn, soybeans, and other produce. But at the same time, critics of tree farming have raised concerns such as the effect that large-scale tree farming operations have on biodiversity. By growing these average 23 acres worth of Christmas trees together all in one spot, that's creating a singular homogenous field in an area where, naturally, you would have hundreds if not thousands of species normally interacting. By lessening that careful interplay of natural biodiversity, farmers are actually making their crops more susceptible to pests and diseases. Two of the most frequent issues that can arise in Christmas tree crops are in the green spruce aphid, an invasive species from Europe, which has the capability of decimating an entire forest in the short amount of time, if left unchecked, and the spruce needle rust, a fungus that can cause disfigurement of the tree and premature needle loss. Does your tree have premature needle loss? No, it's got cool <laughs> pink stuff. I just imagine like one of those like commercials, like if you too suffer from premature <laughs> needle loss. You're getting a little bald on top. <laughs> oh, poor trees. Trees do get bald spots. Um, safe to say that any such infestation on a farm can be catastrophic and lead to a huge loss of economic gain, let alone tree loss. The easiest way critics and environmentalists will point out is that farmers mitigate these issues by spraying pesticides. Pesticides can be a bit of a trigger word, as the quick assumption is that all pesticides are bad, which, yes, surface level, you are spraying chemicals on crops. But pesticides are a bit of a necessary evil in the age of consumption we live in. There's no way farmers would be able to make a living and have a surviving crop that we can then consume that can feed the public. I know, don't eat Christmas trees, they're poisonous, but you get what I'm saying, without doing some spraying. Please do your own research into pesticides before you just jump the trigger. In addition, there's a huge issue with what happens to your tree after Christmas. Do you just put it outside in the curb and let it go to landfill, or do you recycle it? If it's going to a landfill, that's just adding to our global waste. However, you can recycle your tree by taking it and have it made into mulch, or placing it outside as a natural bird feeder or birdhouse for the winter months. I wish you could burn it and just have like a crazy bonfire at the end of the year. That's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) Fun times. But what about artificial trees, I hear you ask? Well, on the surface, I think it's pretty split. On one hand, the production of plastic trees does emit a high amount of chemicals and toxins, and they are mostly produced in countries with high emissions like China. A city called Yibu, uh, southeast of Shanghai, alone accounts for 60% of the global output of plastic fir trees in Christmas lights and associated trimmings. At the same time, though, artificial trees do have a longer lifespan by very definition. Real trees are cut and die within a few weeks, but artificial trees last for a very long time. The one we have at the library, I think, is almost as old as I am. Even though outright production is bad for trees, producing exceedingly high CO2 emissions, the longer you keep your tree, the more you'll be able to offset that carbon emission. 
anywhere between five to 20 years is the reality, or so says my ecology person, um, saying eight years is the time frame to really shoot for. Keep an eye on where you purchase your tree from. Also, is it an ethical company? What is the company doing to offset the emissions created not just from production, but also from shipping that tree, usually overseas, in bulk? And keep an eye on the company where the tree was produced. What is produced with child labor? Was it recycled materials? It's a lot of work, but in the end, it's better for the environment to know the answers to these questions and to be a smart consumer. So really, they both suck. (sighs) Not if you're recycling your real Christmas tree. Oh, so that's the better one? The one you like? Yes. The best option? Obviously. I'm always right. (laughs) (laughs) And while either side of the aisle is quick to throw dirt at the other, it's really personal choice because we do live in a first world society, for the time being, that has the luxury of choice, for the time being. Um, But you know what I find even more fun than talking about CO2 emissions, Jen? Literally anything. Lumberjacks. Oh, okay. That's fair. That's a good point. Lumberjacks are fun. Specifically, lumberjacks on Christmas tree farms who are the hometown hunk and beat out the peacoat wearing city guy with their flannel. I like a peacoat. But a flannel. Flannels are warm. They are. I can't do buttons, but like the flannel's cute. <laughs> you can, you don't, if it's oversized enough, you can just pull it over your head. Yeah, it's got to be real oversized. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so now that we have the nitty gritty about Christmas trees and farms themselves, let's talk about Christmas tree hunks in romance novels. Because while tree farms are often integral settings for romance novels, it is the characters who run themse- the farms themselves that are, most times, a little more interesting. Yeah, hopefully. that's fair. I mean, we don't have romances about the farm. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. The barn door doesn't look longingly over at the fence. I'm sure there's a tree shifter out there somewhere. <laughs> tree beard from Lord of the Rings. Am I right? I'm right. Yep. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, for instance, in In the Event of Love by Courtney Kay, the love interest is the heroine's ex-best friend who owns and runs the family Christmas tree farm. She wears flannels and beanies and hiking boots, shows off her impressive forearms, and likes to go whack at a stump when she's feeling frustrated. In The Season of Love by Helena Greer, the love interest is a big burly butch who, again, loves flannel and suspenders and to go chop down a tree when the heroine is getting on her last nerve. Or in There's Something About Mary by Cody Hall, the heroine, suffering from holiday and winter blues, goes home to the family Christmas tree farm where her eye is caught by the brooding new foreman who, you guessed it, he likes flannels. It's a thing, okay? But why? Why is it a thing? Why is the idea of a big, brooding, muscular love interest who can harvest us that perfect spruce with minimal effort so attractive? And spawning off of that, why are lumber sexuals so popular in metro, in metro settings? Jen, I'm glad you asked. I didn't ask anything yet. Too bad we're getting into it. <laughs> Something we always seem to ask on the podcast when we decide on the subject of the episode and the tropes we want to discuss is, why is such and such so sexy? Why are we attracted to cowboys? Why do we want to read about mafia gangsters or Scottish Highlanders? Why are monsters suddenly the it thing? On and on and on. I love why. At its essence, I think it comes back to why romance books are popular. They're escapist reads, as the majority of traditional fiction tends to be. And we want to read something that we'll enjoy. So, naturally, we're going to gravitate towards and purchase and support books that represent the things we're interested in and, yes, attracted to. Especially in romance novels. There's a lot of self-insertion, I think, that happens. And we like to see ourselves represented in the main character. And our likes, attractions, desires represented in the love interest and the tropes. So by Jen and I asking, why do we find XXX sexy? We're really taking a sociological approach to romance books. What is the driving factor in society behind why we read and write and purchase these books? So then, what is the sociological factor behind lumberjacks and the rise of the lumber sexual trend and the representation of brooding Christmas tree farmers and foremen in our romance books? Well, as Jamie Gentili says for the Odyssey Online, Dating a lumberjack is like dating happiness. If happiness was a person, they would have flannel, a beard, strong legs and arms to lift with, of course, and skin that smelled of pine. Really? I did change the pronouns for masculine because, as I demonstrated with my book titles above, the lumberjack doesn't always have to be a man. That was like a lot, though. Mm. Okay. I mean, I guess if you're into lumberjacks, but like, I don't, I like lumberjack books, but I don't see them as dating happiness. Some people really do. I just think they must be sweaty. 
But no, in romance books, they always smell of clean sweat. I mean, that's fair, but in real and life. pine trees. Look, logging is like one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. We're going to get to that. They do not yes. smell good. No, they really don't. Um, in reality, it's something much less ephemeral and more biological. Okay, well, that's fair, at least yeah. according to the research. If you recall Jen's dating episode, go listen to it if you haven't, we select our mates based on a wide variety of influences. Age, race, religion, social status, cognitive abilities, values, interests, attitudes, personality, dispositions, drinking, smoking, physical attractiveness, and a host of other physical variables such as height, weight, lung volume, and earlobe length. Yes. This is a real thing. It's a real thing. Mm Mm-hmm. In general, when a heterosexual woman is selecting a male mate, the features which commonly most appeal are stereotypical masculine features. Strong arms, facial hair, and a deep voice, i.e. good testosterone development. Women regularly rate men with stubbles and beard beards as more masculine, older, and wiser, things which are overall more attractive for mating pairs as it symbolizes an ability to take care of their partner in multiple ways. I have definitely read the opposite of that. Really? Yes. No. And it depends, too, on um, your cycle, I've read. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it depends, too, because if you're actually looking for, like, a father, this is the type yeah, you avoid. The, the, oh. Yeah. Because they don't, because they, they're they kind of seen as, like, oh, you're going to run around with everybody. You're going to, like, stay here and take care of my kids. You're going to go make more kids. Interesting. Okay. Mm. So I think some of this stuff is really interesting just with scientist interpretations of Oh yeah, why there's a different are. interpretation mm-hmm. for everything. And I mean not to get too into it either, but I've read again these things are shifting just because of, of like aspects like birth control and hormones kind of changing. That's a good point the also. Appeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll talk about uh, a little bit of something else here in a minute. But first, <laughs> I'm just saying I have heard it differently. No, that's a good point. Not to Thank I know you're you. like rounding up to your point, but like She's cutting off my steam here. Jen. Sorry, I'm just saying lots of different options. I just want to talk about Paul Bunyan, okay? I mean, Paul, Bun- Paul Bunyan is attractive. As <laughs> as attractive as a tall tale can be. He's very tall. Which is how you can, you know, like him however you like, because he doesn't really <laughs> exist. So who better exemplifies the stereotypical image of a lumberjack than, as I said, Paul Bunyan or the brawny man? Morgan, if you're listening, I know you're laughing right now because, as I said, I'm a brawny man girl and Morgan was the first to identify this. It's a paper towel mascot. But then why are we so attracted to fictional men? I mean, yeah, that's fair, but it's on a page. Like, there's no backstory to him. You can invent your own. You know what? The closest I did, I was obsessed (laughs) with this dating show that the brawny towel people put together in, like, the 2000s oh my god i, I forgot about that do you remember that where they were having couples on the verge of divorce come together and they were teaching the men how to be like brawny men in order to win their wives back <gasps> that's what i'm about to talk about <laughs> oh my god that's perfect there you go I i'm gonna go see once. if i can find that on youtube now it's real old i do wonder if those people are still together and it was just turning them in, into like flannel wearing chop some wood down mm. go cook her dinner which was like, which was nice for the two thousands. Yeah, not terrible. It's very much like the hunter gatherer mindset, mm-hmm. attractiveness level. Um, so on the surface, then the lumberjack character in romance novels is the best possible mate to write about, right? Even when it comes to queer romances, so often we see this more like masculine presenting or identifying partner typified as the one who has something to do with Christmas tree farms. What's interesting to me though is how lumberjacks came to be sex symbols because. Shocker, as Jen said, the real job is nowhere near as glamorous as Hallmark makes it seem. Jen, when do you think the myth of the modern-day lumberjack that all the lumbersexual men out there are idealizing came from? I feel like people who don't live out in the West needed, like, the forest version of a cowboy. Hey! Because it's basically the same ideals, right? It's just different uniform. Yeah. Instead of being like, oh, the cowboy is all about the hat... With the lumberjack, I have to be like, oh, the lumberjack is all about the axe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the flannel, which you have made. Socking it in the nose. More than clear is very important. Listen, they all have flannels, okay? I own a yeah. lot of flannels. but Flannel anyways. is comfortable. I just like, I can't do the buttons. That's yeah, fine. Really um, I, wish, I wish I could do buttons. <laughs> Paul Bunyan did play a part because the flannel wearing type, again, flannel. I'm sorry. Just go with it, okay? We see in today is a modern take on the deeply rooted Americana image of Bunyan, the axe-wielding but amiable giant whose stomping grounds were the upper Midwest forests. Paul and his fellow Jacks emerged as icons in American pop culture a little over a century ago. The real lumberjacks who worked the Northwoods of Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin at the turn of the century lived a much darker reality than most people realize. So when you say real, are you saying that Paul Bunyan does not exist? He did not exist. I mean, I kind of said that already, but I I figured you you have a history buff. So like Paul Bunyan definitely 
did not exist. No. There was no Paul Bunyan. It was no. made up. I will say where the myth came. There was from. no babe. No, sadly, I, the ox honestly was the cutest thing about that. Yeah, myth. it was blue, wasn't it? Yeah, the blue babe. Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. I. It's been a while since I've wasn't heard the myth. Babe? So, yes, it was babe. Yeah. Babe in the woods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is tempting to gild the image of a lumberjack to romanticize it into something that's like what we see in romance novels: singing "Hi Ho" with an axe over their shoulder, smelling of pine and good clean sweat, making friends with the little baby deer and the squirrels, and then felling a three hundred foot pine with a single swing of your axe. This vision actually originates from the early twentieth century view of masculinity being in crisis. <laughs> Put a pin there. We are going to revisit that. Yeah, I just love things never change. <laughs> We've said that over and over again. Exactly. It's either, everything's either about 9-11 or it's just circular. It's so circular. Everything comes back. Yes. During the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a rapid growth of urbanization in America, especially on the East Coast, as industrialization took hold. Men began to be diagnosed with a disease called neurasthenia, or the overtaxing of the nervous system. Think of it like a men's hysteria. While women were prescribed bed rest to cure their nervousness, men were prescribed fresh air and the great outdoors. You see, according to beliefs at the time... Men had lost their vital maleness, their rough ruggedness that had typified American working men working hard to provide for their families in the centuries since America had been colonized. Yeah, sure, okay. No longer were these young men growing out, working the fields, fighting for their country, being the breadwinners and the doers and the colonizers. Now they were city boys who had lost that essential thing that made them men, and they were suffering for it. (laughs) Please note my raging sarcasm as I talk about this internalized misandry. It is funny. Ten, like a hundred years ago. Yeah. Still like this. Jeez. Yeah. And it's going to be like this a hundred years from now, too. Yep. Uh, Thus, overtly masculine figures like the cowboy and the lumberjack became cultural icons for men during this time. They were the antithesis of that neurasthenic. They were rough. They were rugged. They were outdoorsmen who drank in the wild, untamed air. They conquered nature and beast and smoked and drank and got all the ladies. They were men. It's weird. I I feel like the only thing that kind of surprises me about the lumberjack is, I guess there must be something appealing about a tree because we don't have the same idea about like the (gasps) the gold miners, right? Or like any of these other kind of... It's phallic. Uh, um, Well, like a pickaxe is kind of... Because you're like busting through the wall. You're like mining for gold, right? You're going into the tunnel. Yeah, that could also That's be true. Very... It's just, it's, I, I do think it is a little, maybe not surprising, but, you know, cowboy, lumberjack, these are kind of careers that they were fully focused on and not any of the other stuff. I think I'll talk about this in a minute, but I think a lot of it is because it's easy to play a cowboy and a lumberjack. Like, you don't have mm-hmm. to actually like, do the hard things. Yeah, Whereas you if like you a... go into a mine, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you're doing the thing like it's yeah. super dangerous it's, it's not, not to say these aren't dangerous but you know i think that's a good aspect of kind of like putting on a costume because yeah. you, you who would want to dress like a miner there was a really fun or anecdote. like a chimney sweeper there was a fun anecdote a i read about cowboys yeah. and how the image of the cowboy we should have talked about this during cowboy episode but whatever got so popularized that calvin coolidge the president had oh. a pair of chaps <laughs> that said calvin mm-hmm. on them and they were white leather chaps and there's an image of him with all these other cowboys just like, just like side eyeing him and he's like yeah i got <laughs> my chaps on <laughs> i guess everybody just loves to play dress up exactly that's what mm-hmm. it is They're, we're all just kids yeah. you know even back then you cared about your image even without social mm-hmm. media and with the invention and popularization of the Paul Bunyan myth in 1916 by William Loghead. I laughed way too hard that his last name was Loghead. That had to have been made up. No way was he born with Loghead. Unless I was, I'm logger. just pronouncing it really wrong, like Laughed. Laughed. It's L-A-U-G-H-E-A-D. I think it's fake. I think it's Loghead. <laughs> I don't know. I think he picked it when he was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. Especially because it was a promotional pamphlet about the Red <laughs> River Lumber Company. But William Loghead doesn't even exist. Yeah, you know, he did this promotional you know, pamphlet, talked about Paul Bunyan, and all these city boys had an easily accessible man they could emulate. He's the, the male Betty Crocker. Yes. Or Giselle Bunchen. <laughs> I said her last name wrong. I'm so sorry. And with World War I looming on the horizon, the lumberjack became the symbol of a brave and generous soul who spoke of youth and ardor and strong life. He was everything the effete. Uh, effete? Effete? Effeminate, basically. Over-civilized, urbanized, white man was not. That's a good point, because you don't really see old lumberjacks. No. Mm. No, because they're all dead. Yeah. Um, the message the thus was clear. Get out of the cities and into nature, and the white man would be more powerful than any of the forces threatening him. 
Alas, though, it was too good to be true. As the idealized version of honest labor by cutting down trees, uh, the healthful tonic of fresh air, and a well-muscled male body were, in reality, middle-class romances written for white men stuck (laughs) in urbanized areas. It was their James Patterson. It really was. It was their James Bond. There is still land out there to cut down to, right? So I wonder, too, if some of this is kind of like, hey, get out of the city so you can go make me some money. Oh, probably. Probably from like the capitalist uh, bosses. But a lot of it was like middle class men who during urbanization, they weren't the blue collar like Mm. uh, industrial workers, but they also weren't the capitalists who are owning these ventures. So Mm -hmm. they were kind of just left with nothing to do. The best example I can think of, there is a Brad Pitt movie called Legends of Fall, which is about three brother ranchers, but it's kind of like a gentleman's ranch out in Wyoming. And they like play all these different things and just cause drama amongst themselves. But this was the man. I was envisioning when I was writing this story like they have too much money and too much time on their hands and not enough industry to actually Mm. do something they need a hobby yeah this is their hobby Mm. exactly truthfully the men who made their living as lumberjacks did not have this romantic lifestyle it was dark it was deadly and it took a lot out of a person Where the industry of logging had started out small scale full of family owned lumber camps due to the same influences that led to men being diagnosed with neurasthenia, lumber workers faced the demands of industrialization with need for lumber for various industries skyrocketing during the Gilded Age. And as a result, the men who worked in these camps found themselves in the same position as many a Gilded Age laborer, stuck at the bottom of a capitalist economy with little chance of advancement. Think of the classic image of a railway worker, someone who laid the lines and pounded spikes and handled dynamite on a daily basis. That's closer to the reality of being a lumberjack than Bunyan ever was. The ballads, memoirs, and diaries that chronicle lumberjack life spend little energy describing the natural world, except as a series of hazards. Instead, lumberjacks seem to have reserved the bulk of their nostalgia for the drinking, the fighting, the gambling, and visiting prostitutes in town. I mean, sounds more fun than shopping. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing something, yeah. uh, Today, logging constitutes one of the most dangerous jobs in America, and even with the advent of modern technology... That helped move the industry along. It's still incredibly deadly and people die every single day cutting down trees. Mm -hmm. But, and here's where we take that pin out from before, lumber sexual and plaid and whiskey drinking manly men have been on the rise again lately. Why? Economic recessions and the view that men are, once again, in a crisis of masculinity. Are they ever not in a crisis? They're men, Can men just, like, calm down? Are you guys Okay. (laughs) Do you need do you need a hug? I'm not soft for me. No, sorry. We know touchy, but you can go hug each other. It's okay. Go to therapy. Yes, go to therapy. Essentially, since the early aughts, there has been another shift in the job force, and especially in terms of industrial sectors like tech and development and in upper management. Mostly in that in the wake of the Great Recession, three quarters of the eight million jobs lost were lost by men. The worst hit industries were overwhelmingly male and deeply identified with macho, construction, manufacturing, and high finance. Since then, the white-collar economy that we have been living with for the past 20-ish years tends to value more raw intellectual horsepower, which men and women do have in equal amounts. But it also requires communication skills and social intelligence, areas in which women, according to many studies, have a slight edge. Yeah. Perhaps most important, for better or worse, it increasingly requires formal education credentials, which women are more prone to acquire, particularly in adulthood. In fact, in the last 12 years, the amount of Fortune 500 CEOs has risen from 3% in 2010 to 8.8% of the positions held by women now in 2022. Yay! 5.8%. Something. You know, that's more power to them. And so, with women now being the predominant leading force in a lot of industries, there is a view that, once again, masculinity is in crisis, especially for the cishet identifying white men who live and work in cities. We see this represented not only in the predilection for masculine-looking men with strong jaws, big hands and shoulders, and deep voices during certain times of the month, as Jen pointed out earlier, but also in the growth of the lumber sexual trend that took over urban and suburban areas in the mid to late teens. Think of your cousin who started that microbrewery and tried to grow a very sad, patchy beard. Yeah, that that was all part of this. It's also, not so fun fact, part of the reason why we have seen such a growth of incels in the last 10 years. But anyways, let's move on to happy things. Let's bring it back to romance novels. A lot of critics constantly pick on romances for always having big, burly, manly men heroes, which we definitely see in the more traditional Christmas romances, which feature these lumberjack type manly men as the love interests. And you know what? Yeah. 
Of course we're seeing the Lumberjack character in our romance books. In case none of the previous hour's discussion made it clear, Christmas tree farms and Christmas trees are part of the long bread tradition for a lot of Americans, and the Lumberjack attraction goes just as deep. It's these two classic Americana views, a Christmas tree and a bearded beflannel man that, yeah, we can safely idealize in our favorite winter romance novels. Because unlike in real life, the men in romance novels aren't necessarily going to be IPA-toning urbanites with dull hand axes. Instead, they're feminists. They're grumpy, but with a heart of gold. They're rough-handed, but tender-hearted. You get what I'm going with. They're the ideal, manly version we like to escape with. Plus, they smell like Christmas, and there's nothing wrong with that. I feel like, too, with lumberjacks, maybe more so than cowboys or kind of anything in that vein. They've got more of that pull you up by your bootstraps, mm, yeah. loner, um, manly and independent, and we can go escape into the woods together, be a hermit, and you never have to go back to society <sighs> ever. There's a lot of uh, non-Christmas lumberjack romances yeah. that are like he's a millionaire who mm-hmm. lives on a mountain and he builds I've his own read cabin. That so many times, like so many you, times, you want to get away from Wall Street or whatever, and so yeah, I'm gonna go build my cabin by hand and just up. I'm gonna stumble across the waitress in town and yeah. one of the the six month trips I go in. Like, yeah. it's weird how we still kind of cram in. Um, like a billionaire romance into a lumberjack sometimes yeah that's kind of what it made me think of and hey that goes right back to you know these men have time on their hands (laughs) (laughs) they need to do something with themselves they don't have to work anymore so they'll go chop some logs down for their own house and just stay away from everybody build their own house that's something that i kind of like about the lumberjack when i read it it's like i don't want to live here anymore just sweep me off to the woods i will be the bigfoot myth Okay. I'll go wear a suit because that's you. all it is and go scare Jackie <laughs> and just like be away from everybody. And it feels like Lumberjacks is kind of your best chance to do that. Yeah. Like with cowboys, they don't really build the shelter. Like maybe they can go get you food or whatever. No, but it's, it's like about wild like, camping. Yeah. It's like camp. Like who wants to camp that long? Ugh, like maybe you, but I'm like. I Not for that long. Yeah. I, I would much rather have a cabin. No, I really like indoor plumbing. Yes. But and like a Lumberjack could probably figure that out. Cowboy, not so much. Uh, I like I like trees more than sand. This is true. The sand, yeah. I think, would be pretty stressful in the desert when you're trying nice to get the, mountainside the cows. I'm not a big cow person. Lumber- <laughs> I know you made that joke about, oh, lumberjacks make friends with animals. But, like, <laughs> probably most lumberjacks only have dogs. Yes, they all have good dogs. Which I'm cool with. Like, I don't need any of this other. Maybe they'll have a goat. I think I've read, like, one lumberjack that had a goat for milk. You know what I'll be interested to see is right now maybe it's in the circles i mean there's a huge rise in like homesteading mm. and oh like, you know yeah not Whatever. prepping but like just shy of prepping mm-hmm. and i want to wonder how long it's gonna take for that to be reflected in romance well the thing is everybody makes fun of that who knows better because yeah. it's <laughs> like all of those pictures are always like oh it's the woman in the long white dress and clean hands and she's got the basket full of strawberries not she bought at walmart it and it's like if you meet a real homesteader or somebody who actually does like live off the land and is very independent and does not have some of these modern conveniences they do not look like that no definitely not <laughs> no or some of these people who are like oh what role are you gonna be on the commune when we live off the land and run away from society i am gonna be useless you're gonna be the baker that, but I, i'm where am i gonna get my flour where am i gonna get my stuff am i gonna, gonna go, teach you where how am to make I gonna flour? Get the sugar am i gonna really sit oh. there and get maple syrup and that's gonna be my only sweetener because where am i gonna get sugar in the middle Honey. of new york Okay, so I gotta be a beekeeper Dude, now too. We live in upstate New York. There's syrup trees all over the That's place. What I mean, but you know how long it takes to get that syrup? And I'm gonna have to make baked goods for how many people in this commune? <laughs> we'll have a small commune. So it, it's much <laughs> easier in romance to just like cover all of this stuff. I mean, the homesteader thing is kind of interesting. I do wonder if we're gonna see if that's gonna leak. But again, I think most people who are not in those groups and who are not like, oh, I could definitely totally live like this and take it very seriously, I think they see there is like kind of like. You guys are being very optimistic and stupid. Mm. To put very nicely, I could be way meaner because some of those are kind of like some of those far right white nationalist yeah. groups that want to get away. Yeah. So they've got their own issues on top of things. But no, I'm like, you're not really going to be a homesteader. No, no. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't want to be a homesteader. <laughs> I don't think you're listening to me while you're churning butter. No. So I think that's safe to say. I don't remember what the original point was. Neither do I. I do like lumberjacks, though. I do like them a lot. I know I kind of pushed back a little bit about the the attraction things. I've read so many different theories about that. I don't think scientists always kind of know what they're talking about. And it's hard, too, when there's, like, (laughs) 
billions of women out there. I mean, can you really say that all of them are attracted to this one type biologically? Plus, it wasn't until this year that I started reading queer lumberjacks, like lumberjanes or lumber Mm -hmm. non-binaries. Yeah, that's true, because I've seen queer cowboys for a very long time. Not so much with the lumberjacks. I feel like people kind of had to play catch up, because... I, I don't always think about them. Yeah. Like, I know it's a subgenre, but, you know, when we were talking about, like, our genres and we were talking about, like, lost genres and, like, things like that, Lumberjacks just never really popped into my head. No. I think they're still so prevalent in indie spaces, too. Yeah, I'm not seeing them too much in mainstream. Like, even in shifters, a lot mm-hmm. of the shifters are Lumberjacks or, like, woodly men. With that, I think it is because there is also kind of that loner thing. How do you mean? Like, because, like, shifters are kind of, like, alone and outcast. Lumberjacks oh, are kind of, like, loners. Okay. I thought you meant, like, loner, like, a rental. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, they're alone. They're, they are alone. like to be alone yes. from people. Lonely. You know, they want to be on their mountain for six months before they come down to town and see people. They want to go months without talking to a single living person. There, There is something about that that I think is very appealing to the, the lumberjack aesthetic. And that's yeah. what I think some people are looking for when they pick it up. Yeah. And, yeah, the flannel is a big thing. Like I bet the flannel is very comfortable. I just it's a good point. It's a good point. Also, beards are not like all they're wrapped up to be. Like not clean. You have to clean them, you have to brush them, you have mm-hmm. to put oil in them. Yeah. Men. There's a total conditioner <laughs> is real. There's a difference between having a well groomed beard and just having the scraggly thing. You just look yeah. Go crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, home brews are never as good as no. they're, you think they're going to be. Just, I, I don't drink it. I already know that just yeah. as a fact. Nobody yeah. has to confirm that for me. I'm just like, I'm sure your little rinky dink thing in the back of your house is not going to be that great. I will say the best home brew I've had is from mm-hmm. um, my lesbian best friends. Mm-hmm. So, cause obviously they're women, they know how to do things. And I feel gross saying that cause I am that person who's like, Oh, homemade is usually better, but it doesn't feel like the same with mm, yeah, alcohol. No. It does feel a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, Jen, did I make your heart grow three times no. larger? Okay, yeah. absolutely not. I mean, <sighs> I I might try harder for Christmas. Maybe. Well, if you're gonna do it, sure. I hate doing that stuff. Okay, I hate that okay. so much. You know, I did like because I, I another tree could be nice. It's just like, yeah. I just what am I gonna do with it? And I gotta put it away. I don't even put my own stuff away that I keep out <laughs> all year round. And I'm gonna put away this tree that I have to like. We can just do a, a cookie month. exchange instead. I can make my own cookies. <laughs> You don't trust other people's baking, and we need to talk to your therapist about this. Other people's baking is fine. It's just <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Fine. Usually, it depends on the the item. <laughs> depends. Okay. Well, I don't even know the point of this anymore. I'm very sorry we rambled at the end. Lumberjacks, though, are very interesting, and I would check them out. Let us know why you guys are attracted to lumberjacks, if you have a reason, if you are, if you haven't been. If you've met a lumberjack in real life and can tell us, oh, hey, that is not what it is like at all, let us know at ragingromantics at nopal.org. And let us know if you're a real Christmas tree person or a fake Christmas tree person. Fake is so much fun with the color, at the very least. You can just get the cologne and spray it. Oh, but it smells like fake then. Or, like, get the Christmas tree candle. And Plus spread they're them all like over really the place. pokey and like they make your hands feel weird. How often are you touching the tree? I don't know. So like, what does it matter what your hands feel <laughs> all like? All I know is I really hate setting up the work Christmas tree. That's why I make Shelby set it up. Well, sorry to Shelby. And you should just... I don't and then I decorate it. But anyways, <sighs> gang, thank you so much for an amazing year. Once again, don't forget to go listen to our last mini soda of the year. It's coming out to you next mm-hmm. week. Thank you for bearing with us on our many wonderful rambles of 2022. Yes. And many more to come. Of old lang syne. No singing. <laughs> Jen, what do we always say? Rage Merry Christmas and a happy new year and happy holidays. Okay, bye. Woo! So, what does the typical Christmas tree lifestyle look like? Or lifestyle. Lifestyle. <laughs> 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 Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. <laughs>